Hey dear Father, as we come here today, we pray that you may soften our hearts as we tackle the difficult issue of giving, and we pray that you will be open to your word as it is taught in the Bible, and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we come today uh, to the difficult topic of giving of money. Now, it's one of the hardest topics to preach for many pastors on this topic of giving, because I think, first of all, it seems very self-serving for the pastor to preach on giving, right? Because after all, you know, the money comes to me, so, you know, it sort of seems that I want you to give more money so I'll enrich myself. Well, you know, it's a bit like asking, you know, a barber, do I need a haircut, right? Or a car salesman, do I need a car, see? But let me just tell you that uh, even if you all were to increase your giving by five times, uh, my wage would probably stay the same because this is not Barclays Bank, right? There is no uh, incentive bonus scheme or bonus share scheme if the church earns more money. Secondly, I think um, it's hard for pastors to preach on money because uh, there's a bad reputation which goes with money and pastors preaching. You know, you think of pastors preaching about money and the picture of televangelists from you know, America comes to mind or even maybe today some prosperity gospel pastors who keep talking about money, money, money. Now I remember when I was uh, very young as a Christian and I, this memory has stayed with me for many years. We were in a university church which was quite poor and I remember halfway to the second half of the year, maybe like August, October, the pastor was uh, trying to encourage us to give more money because the church was in deficit. And he was, you know, he had a slide up here showing, you know, this is how much we need to spend by the end of the year. This is where we're at. If we don't raise this money, you know, the pastors won't be able to eat. All right. Then this angry Indian man with a turban stood up and walked off in a huff. And the assistant pastor went to talk to him. He said, what's wrong? He said, oh, you know, you, you Christians are always talking about money. All you want is our money. And we felt really bad afterwards because, you know, we felt that we stumbled this man who wasn't a Christian. But we, we were just talking about something which the church needed to talk about. So it was very hard, I think, in the church to talk about money because we don't want to give people a bad impression. But we need to talk about money in the end because the Bible teaches us about money and how we should use money. And that's what it's about today. So the topic of uh, today's uh, sermon, if you could open out your outline, it would be really helpful. Today is very helpful if you have the outline because I'm going to go through a, uh, a few steps and you need the outline to get an idea where I'm going. And the title of today's talk is, How Should We Tithe? And the title is taken directly from a feedback form that we sent out last year. So please fill out the feedback forms that you have here today because we do take it into consideration and we do use it. And the feedback form said as the title of the sermon, How Should We Tithe? And I think it's a good question uh, because it's a question that people ask. But the first thing we have to ask is what is the meaning of tithe? What does tithe mean? Well, literally tithe is the practice of giving 10%. 10% is very important. 10% tithe means 10% of one's income, property or produce to support a religious institution. That's what tithe means. Giving 10% to support religious institution. And that was the ancient practice uh, in the Middle East uh, for many years. And that was the practice that was practiced by God's earliest people in the Bible. So if you look at the Bible, basically what I've done is I've looked through the instances where the Bible talks about tithe and, and taken out for you. So if you look up here on the slide, the very first instant of the word tithe appearing is Abram. Abram was the first of God's people who was chosen by God, right? Remember God chose Abram? So after Abram returned from defeating this guy with a long name, Kedoloma, and the king's allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shabeh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, 
he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then, Abram gave him a tithe. Right? He gave him a tenth of everything. So, it's a very simple situation. Abram came, he was victorious, met a priest, priest blessed him, said that God gave him victory, and Abram gave the priest 10% of everything he had. The next instance comes in Genesis chapter 28. Okay, up here. And uh, now we come to Abram's grandson, uh, who was Jacob. So, you know, Abram, Isaac, Jacob. So here, Abram, sorry, not Abram, Jacob, had a dream. He was sleeping on the floor for a rock, for a pillow. And uh, he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised, promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. I'm not, I'm not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that, I, that you give me, I will give you a tithe, I will give you a tenth. So what happened here? Jacob, in response to a dream, made a vow to God, if you bring me back safely from my trip, I will give you a tithe. So as you can see, from its earliest times, right, tithing was there, and it was for religious purposes, to a priest, to build a house of worship. But you notice one thing about tithing was that it was a free will tithing. It was a voluntary tithing. They tithe because they felt like it. it didn't say you, God didn't say, you must tithe, right? It was a part of a thanksgiving, part of a blessing, part of a vow. So if you look at this map here, okay, next slide. Oh, sorry, the arrows, circles are still a bit mixed up. So, um, remember, Jacob made a tithe in Bethel and uh, Abram made a tithe in Sodom. So, next slide. Oh, actually, oh no, you can go back, go back to the slide. So, all through the early generations of God's people, uh, from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and as they journeyed down, remember after that, they were slaves in Egypt. Okay, next slide. Slaves in Egypt. And then they wandered around the, the wilderness to the Promised Land. There is no mention of tithe in the Old Testament. Right? God didn't say to the people, Moses, you must tithe. And there's no record of anybody tithing. They just, this is just something that didn't happen. So it's a free will tithing. People just gave when they felt like it. But after God's people enter into the promised land, when they come into Israel, right, it changes. Because no longer is tithing, the giving of 10%, a free will thing but it becomes a compulsory thing. 
It is now part of the law and the commandments and the decrees. So, if you look at the next slide, oh, don't worry about that, next slide. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 14, God gives the instruction, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, and anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So what did God say? God said every year, bring 10% of your produce, next slide, oh, that's good, and come to the place where he will choose, which was eventually Jerusalem, where the temple was. And if you've got too many things, you know, God has blessed you super duper so much, sell the stuff you have, convert it into silver, and then go to Jerusalem, then buy, right? And then when you go there, have a really big party. Okay, have a big party, you know, don't get drunk, but, you know, eat lots and have a good time. And with the remainder, make sure that you feed the priests and provide for the priests. So you see here, tithing must be done on a yearly basis. It's like a tax. Right? It's like the internal revenue says you must pay tax every year, right? Well, in Israel, you're going to live in the land, pay tax. But that tax comes with a party, of course, right? And then, use the remainder of the 10% to feed the Levites, take care of the temple, do whatever. But if they come into the land, the tax is not just a religious tax, but a welfare tax to look after the poor. Because, in Deuteronomy 14, next slide, you see that every year, they went to Jerusalem and gave 10%, but every third year, they were to bring all the tithes of that year's produce, no party this year, right? Or maybe party in the town, and store it in your towns. Right? Don't store it in Jerusalem, but store it in the town. So that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 26 says exactly the same thing. Oh, is it there? Good. When you finish setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion, which is the 10%, and I have given it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless and the widow, according to all you have commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God, I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So, it is not just a religious tax, it is a welfare tax, right? the, the tithe. And, uh, next slide, 
instead of just going to Jerusalem, they are meant to store in all the major cities in Israel. And they are not just to feed the religious institutions, but the poor, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, why do they need to do that? Because they are now part of the land, isn't it? As they come into the land, they are to be governed by God's law. And just as there is now a temple, just as there is now a priesthood, just as there is now a state of people where there are poor people and uh, people who are weak, so God said that they must obey His commandments. It is the law, right? The law. They must give 10%. And if they give that 10% or obey the law, what will happen? Deuteronomy, uh, next slide. Oh, sorry, before that. Go backwards, sorry. Again? Backwards. What it says? God will, in the last verse, bless. Right? He will bless the people in the land. So why must they give? They give a tenth because of the commandment and because God will bless them. Now, as we come into the New Testament, right? so we've gone from before they go into the land, we saw there's a free will tithing, we saw that when they're in the land, there's a compulsory tithing. What happens when we come into the New Testament when Christians become all over the world? Well, if you do a word study of the word tithe, it rarely ever appears in the New Testament. In fact, when it appears in the New Testament, it is actually used in a negative way. Uh, it is used to attack the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. So if you look up here on the slide again, Next slide. Jesus says to the Pharisees, in uh, probably the same incident, huh? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And Luke says the same thing, right? Again, Jesus attacks the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Next slide. Because the Pharisee stands up and he tries to justify himself before God and he prays about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other, peop- other men, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Right? And then uh, the Hebrews passage goes back to the Melchizedek incident in Genesis chapter 14. So as you can see, and this is a very, very important point, right? if you fall asleep, this is where you need to wake up. Tithing is not instructed for Christians. I'll repeat that again. Tithing is not instructed or commandment for Christians. It is only part of the gospel narrative. Jesus used it to criticize the Pharisees, but nowhere in the Bible does it say, you must give 10% as a Christian. Now that is because tithing is tied with the law, and tithing is tied with the land. It is a tax, a welfare tax, a religious tax to pay for the temple, to pay for the religious people who look after the temple, to, to look after the people in the land. Now, whatever you think, nobody can mistake 19F Charlton Lane for a temple, right? Okay? It is not the temple. Okay? And neither can you mistake me for the Le- Levitical priesthood. All right? And we, we, this is not the nation state of BDPC. All right? So there's no equivalent tithing tax among God's people today as Christians. So two important things that we have to learn from this is we cannot teach in churches that you must give 10%. Uh, A Christian was sharing how 
he went to church in Melbourne and uh, a piece of paper was passed to all the church members. And on the piece of paper was like a, a sliding scale of uh, your wage. And uh, according to like how much you earn, this is how much you should give every week to church. Which when you work backwards is 10%. So then the Christian guy went to the Bible and said, well, where, where, where can you show me in the Bible where it says that I as a Christian must pay 10%? It's not there, right? They couldn't find it. So you cannot demand it and you cannot legalize it and say we must pay 10%. Everybody must pay 10%. There was someone at church recently who spoke to me and said, actually, right now, there's a church which is facing this problem because the pastors and leaders have said to all the church members and Christians that you must give 10%. If you do not give 10%, you are not a Christian. And I just heard today that apparently if you don't give 10%, they put your name up on the board. <laughs> okay? Now, as a, as a result, half the church left because they couldn't find the Bible where you could justify saying you must give 10%. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why then do we give money at church, right? Why do we have these offering bags? Maybe we don't have to give money at all. Right? What does the New Testament tell us if we don't have to give 10% the tithe. Next slide. Um, well, as my son has read already in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you can see that the principle that we follow is different from the 10% principle. Now, I'm going to be preaching on this passage next week, so I don't really want to say everything I want to say next week, this week. But what the story is, uh, if you're paying attention when Joshua is reading the Bible, was that Paul was in Macedonia. Macedonia was a very poor part of uh, the ancient world. Uh, I don't want to give any examples about Singapore because you might be living there. Okay? But it was a poor part of Singapore. But even so, uh, you can see that in verse 2, right? They, were, they, were, they had extreme trial and extreme poverty. But yet, they were generous. They were generous. Now, why were they generous? That's an important thing, right? What is the principle that we have to follow? The answer is in verse 9. Okay, look at verse 9. Oh, next slide. Verse 9. I'm not commanding. So now Paul takes the Macedonian example and he applies it to the Corinthian ones because the Corinthians were very rich Christians. Okay? Think of really rich. Okay? Corinth was like the Singapore of their day. I'm not commanding you, Paul says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, you notice the principle there? The principle is not the tithing principle or the 10% principle, but rather it is the principle of generosity. Right? He's saying that they must be generous in the same way that Jesus was generous towards us. And how generous was Jesus towards us? Did Jesus give 10% to us? Did Jesus give 20% to us? Did he give 50% to us? No, Jesus gave 100% to us, isn't it? He was exceedingly generous to us. That's what Jesus was. And that's the principle that we are to have when we give money, we are to imitate Jesus. He was, though Jesus was rich, he became poor for our sake. 
And that's the principle of the Bible for Christians. We are to imitate Christ's generosity in our financial giving. Because Jesus, though he had all the glories and riches of heaven, chose to become a carpenter on earth and die for our sins. So there's a book uh, that uh, was referred to when I was doing my preparation. And that book is called Beyond Tithing. Right, beyond tithing. And what it's actually saying is Christians go beyond 10%. Because the principle of the Bible is not, for us as Christians, not 10%, but generosity. Exceeding generosity, which Jesus showed us. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that's the first thing that we learn about giving as Christians. We must be generous. The rule is not 10%. The rule is generosity. And the model is Jesus Christ, not the law. The second thing we learn is there is no command, there is no law in the New Testament which says you must give. You must give. That's why here, right, next slide. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, uh, Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness to others. You see, what love is, 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 is the Bible talking about? He wants to see how sincere their love for God is. right? How great their love for God is, whether it shows in their giving. He says, well, you know these Macedonian Christians, they are so poor, they gave this much. How much are you giving when you are so rich? Have you understood the generosity of Jesus to you? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says, uh, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give. There's no command, right? Not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you are abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You see, there's no command. It says you must give. You must give. But rather, it is given cheerfully. It's given because you want to give. See, that's the problem with tithing, right? If, if I say to you, you must give 10%, then there is a feeling of burdensomeness, right? Oh. Troublesome, right? It's like, I already paid my tax to the government, now you want me to pay my 10% to you, right? So, uh, apparently in uh, Wales, there was a, 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 there's a sign on a tombstone or something, it says, in loving memory of the beloved cow of Mr. James Davis, who went as prey to the insatiable greed of the ecclesiastical commissioners. Now, this man was not a cheerful giver, right? He didn't want to give his car away, but the car was taken. Now, why should we see giving in a cheerful way? Why should we be glad to take out our wallets and give money? Well, I think as you can see from this passage, because it's actually an act of grace. Right? It's an act of, as Jesus has shown and God has shown extreme grace to us, so we show grace to other people. It is a harvest of righteousness. It is a righteous act before God. It is a good work. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you go back again, you've got to go back to 2, 8, huh? sorry, um, Mark. Next one. Ah, next one, Mark. Some more? Ah, you notice what the, the Paul calls uh, giving. He sees it as a privilege. He doesn't see giving as a burden. He sees it as a privilege. And that's why these Macedonian Christians, though they were so poor, they wanted to have the privilege of sharing what they had with the Christians in Jerusalem who didn't have enough. Now, I like what this uh, Philip Yancey wrote. He said that uh, in America, he gets lots of mail for donations. So he said, okay, for one month, he decided to collect all his fundraising letters and see what they asked for. So he got 62 letters, imagine, in one month for fundraising, for political causes, for environmental causes, for religious groups. And he said all the letters use the same approach. They always direct you to the needy situation. You know, all these trees will die if you do not give money. You know, this rare African butterfly will die if you do not give money. This child will not get an education if you do not send money. There will be too many guns in America if you do not send money. I mean, all these things are always about the need, right? The focus on the need of the recipient. But he said that when you look at the Bible in 2 Corinthians, the focus is not on the need of the recipient. The, the focus is on you. On us as Christians. We give because it is our act before God. An act of righteousness, a response of grace. Right? It is a privilege to be able to share with others what God has blessed us with. So I think that's the second thing that we learn. There is no command in the New Testament that says, you must give money. But rather, it is a response of knowing Jesus' generosity towards us, a response to God's grace, a response of love towards God. The third thing is, and this is a surprising thing, is I think the New Testament tells us that there is no 10% but rather those who have more should give more. If you do not have enough, then you don't give. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, oh, you got to go forward again, to, I don't know what number it is. Okay, page 14 there. And next, keep going. Some more? Some more? Some more? Oh, that's it. Okay, good. No, no, go back, go back. Go back. Oh, that's it, that's it. That's good. Okay. It says, our desire is not that others might, have, might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be Equality. Equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now, the Bible is not saying we should all be communists, right? because communists say there's no private property, but we, no, we're not saying no, no private property. It's, you all have your own private property. But what it's actually saying is, that the more you have, then the more you can give away. Right? So, there's no 10% rule where everybody must give 10%. If you're a poor person, if you have little, right, let's say you're a poor student and your parents only give you enough allowance for your meals and you have no money left over, then you don't have to give money. If you're unemployed, if you don't have money, that means you don't have to give money. If you're struggling to support a large family or someone in your family is sick or there's an illness in your family, then you don't have to, have to give money, right? Because if you look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul never asked the Macedonian church to give money. They wanted to give money. 
Not because Paul approached them, but because they, they desired to. Because Paul recognized that they were poor and they didn't have the capacity to give. So what the, it says actually is, those who are rich and are blessed of a lot, they have a greater responsibility to give. Right? And to give even more than 10%. Great generosity. And that's why some people say that tithing 10% is actually an easy tithe. See, if you're a rich person, 10% is actually easy for you. Right? Because tithing 10% is a legalism. It makes you feel good about yourself. You can justify it to yourself. But it's not the generosity that the New Testament talks about. The generosity which Jesus showed us. And that's why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their legalism. Remember we read early on about how the only times in the New Testament tithing is brought up is, is used against the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very proud about their tithing three times, right? In the prayer and when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, they all give 10%. But look at what God, Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. Then the Lord said to him, uh, the Pharisee, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Right? You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside made the inside also, but give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. See, the Pharisee would say, I give 10% of everything, and I give it diligently. I go to the garden, I give 10% of this, I go to whatever, I give 10%. But Jesus says, you are greedy. They were not generous. In their hearts, they were full of wickedness. And he challenges them to give what is inside, generously. See, that's, that's the heart of the problem, isn't it? That Jesus puts his finger onto. You cannot be generous and greedy at the same time. There is no generous, greedy person, right? Or greedy, generous person. You're either a greedy person or a generous person. You cannot be both. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to the Pharisee, look, you guys are just greedy. You might give your 10%, but you have so much more to give and you're not being generous. You are just being a legalist. So the principle for us is not 10%, but generosity. As God has given us more, then we have the capacity to give more. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, God warns us very clearly that the greedy person actually is an idolater. He worships money. And if you keep worshipping money, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now I want you to think for a second and ask yourself whether you characterize yourself as a greedy person or a generous person. You think of yourself as a greedy person or a generous person. When God looks at you, would he see you as a greedy person or a generous person? In America, I guess uh, some of the wealthiest Christians are in America. Right? I mean, America is a very wealthy place. I want you to think for a second, how much as a percentage of their income does the average American Christian give uh, away? Is it 20% the average American Christian gives away? 10% maybe? 5%? Well, statistically, the average American churchgoer in America gives 3% of their income away. No wonder they want to ask them to give 10%, right? They get 7% more. Now, that is not uh, generosity, that is uh, greed, right? Because I'm, pr I'm sure that many of them can afford to give a lot more. So I wonder for ourselves whether as we examine our own lives, whether we are greedy or generous. 
Uh, maybe you get an unexpected bonus or raise. Uh, I know for myself, when I used to that, the, the question that always comes out, oh, how can I spend this money, right? What should I do with this money? Maybe I can buy something or spend it on myself in some way. But do we ever ask ourselves when we get this unexpected bonus or raise, whether, oh, how can I be generous with this money that God has given me? Now, this is a very famous uh, guy called Oliver Cromwell. Uh, you can read up on him. Very famous Christian who was uh, serving as Lord Protector of England under the king. And apparently, uh, during his time as Lord Protector, there was a financial shortage. And they didn't have enough silver to mint coins. Because I guess in those days, they used silver, right? So he sent his treasurer to see where they could find more silver. The treasurer returned to say there was plenty of silver around. And Oliver Cromwell said, where, where can we find it? He said, well, they're found in all the statues of the saints in the cathedrals and around the country. So Oliver Cromwell said, well, that's really good news. What we'll do is we'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. Now we face the same problem today, isn't it? Because there's a financial shortage for God's work. Everywhere you look, there are needs in God's kingdom. So I don't get 62 uh, letters of appeal every month. I have a letter of appeal here from Wise Old Theological College, which says that they need $247,000 Australian, so more than that, right? To cover their operating expenses before the end of June. Well, obviously a lot of money, right? I have another letter of appeal here from Andrew and Grace Home. Uh, I don't know whether you know Andrew and Grace Home, but they look after uh, single mothers or teenage runaways, and they need $80,000. So I think there are lots of needs out there for Christian work, for Christian people, for Christian ministry, but there's not enough money. So how do we get more money? Well, God has lots of money. What's the problem? The problem is, all that money is in the pockets of the Christian saints. And what's the answer? We need to melt down the saints and put the wealth to work, right? put it into circulation. And how do you melt down the saints? Well, it starts by melting down our hearts, isn't it? Because I think the problem is not a financial problem, but the problem is a spiritual problem. It's because Christians fail to understand the generosity they've been shown in Jesus, and therefore they fail to give generously. They fail to give cheerfully because they do not see the privilege of giving. That it is a harvest of righteousness, a reflection of our love for God, that it is a good work, that it is a reflection of God's grace in our life. So I was reading some articles uh, from the Briefing Magazine and it was helpful because they wanted to challenge you practically on how you could do that. So one example was, are you content with your lifestyle or do you find yourself always chasing the newer, the shinier, the bigger, and more? And I think that's true, isn't it? Because uh, it's so easy to be part of our materialistic consumerist society where whenever we get more money, we just want to spend more, isn't it? And we want to have newer things, shinier things, better things. You know, you open a newspaper, you go to digital life, there are always new things to buy. You know, you go to, what's the holiday thing? You know, there's a holiday section, there are always different places to go to. And we just tailor it based on how much we earn, isn't it? So there's a Christian couple that I heard of. And they retired. They wanted very much to go on a round-the-world trip. But their conscience wouldn't let them because they knew of a missionary who was 
struggling with money in the mission field. And they realized that with the money that they would spend around the world trip, they could help their missionary friend serve for many more years. And they, they felt that they couldn't enjoy their holiday knowing in their heart how much benefit their money could, could have in an eternal perspective helping their missionary friend. So in the end, they chose not to go on their round-the-world holiday and gave the money instead to the missionary. I remember when I was in university, the pastor used to always challenge us and ask us how many meals we ate outside because, you know, in Australia, actually, it's very expensive to eat out. I hear, you know, we eat out all the time after church or so we eat. But, you know, in Australia, eating out is really expensive, right? So he challenged us and said, you know, if you ate just one less meal at McDonald's a week, you would save $10. And that would be $40 a month and $480 a year. And he said, you know, how much would that mean to the kingdom of God, that one Big Mac or whatever you ate? How much of a church worker's salary would that pay? And how many Bibles would that mean for some Eastern European country? How many medical resources for missionaries in Africa? Uh, how much theological training for a theological college in Myanmar, and how many poor Christians could you help, right? So I think that's a, it was a really uh, interesting article which said, you know, why not just take one step today, one, make one cutback in your life today, one ch- deliberate choice where you say, in order to have the privilege of sharing generously, I will cut back in one area of my life, which actually is no big deal to me anyway, because I don't derive that much pleasure from it, and actually make a difference in God's kingdom because of it. The second thing that uh, was pointed out in some of the articles was we need as Christians to decide for ourselves our standard, our, our standard of living and our lifestyle. Because I think um, usually the world determines the lifestyle that we lead. Okay, I remember when I was working, as you get promoted higher and higher, you, you, you use the money that you get from your promotions to live like the people around you. you know, so as you get promoted, people drive you drive or they drive bigger cars and you drive bigger, they, they go on different holidays so you go on different holidays but ultimately we have to decide what our lifestyle is right? and if we are happy and content with that lifestyle then if we get money on top of that we can spend that money and give generously so John Wesley had this policy in his life as a single man he decided okay how much do I need to be content with my life in the beginning of his ministry he earned very little so he gave very little away. But as he got more and more, as people gave him more and more money, he gave the rest away because he said, this is what I was happy with and this is what I'll, I'll stay with. I remember, if you, for those of you who are doing the marriage course, uh, Rob Parsons, he was a psychologist, he said, uh, I mean, this was in England, I, I don't know so much whether it's true in Singapore, he said, most couples live 10 beyond, 10% beyond their means. So it means that they, they live 10% beyond their paycheck because they're always projecting the next rise, right? Now, as Christians, obviously, we, we don't live 10% beyond our paycheck, but, but we, maybe we live within our, pay, our paycheck. But I think that as we look at this passage, the challenge for us is maybe we need to live within and under our paycheck. I say, look, you know, beyond a certain point, I'm happy with life. I don't need all these things anymore. I can, I can be generous. I can have the privilege of sharing this with Christian work and making a difference in God's kingdom. So I was praying about this last night and I think, you know, some of you are really very generous in your giving and I don't want for this sermon to make you feel guilty. So, you know, 
I'm, not, I'm failing in this area. But for some of you, as you reflect on God's Word, maybe you see that there is more that God has blessed you with and that you failed to be generous in your life. Maybe for some of you, you just stick to the 10% policy and you think, okay, uh, I've, I've fulfilled the law. But actually, as we can see here, if we realize what Jesus has done for us in giving us all of himself with extreme generosity, then as we love Jesus as a reflection of our faith and, and love for him, then we should follow that if the material things that God has blessed us with. And if God has blessed you with plenty, then he has given you an especially good position uh, to bless other people too with the things that you have. And maybe you need to give a lot more than what you're giving now. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that you help us to examine our hearts, to help us to truly think through the issues that have been raised here, to see if we can be doing more, to see whether we are greedy or to see whether we are generous. Teach us to be discerning, teach us to be wise, and to know perhaps where we need to cut corners and still be contented so that we can bless others with this money that you have blessed us with. Where we know the complete fullness of the generosity you have shown us in Jesus. May we know the privilege and the harvest of righteousness that, brings, that, that comes to us because of our sharing of our material wealth with others. We God, dear God, we pray that you will use us mightily in this way where we can use the financial wealth that you've given us to make a difference in your kingdom. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.